We are talking about joy today, and we are continuing on in our series, Better Together. And um, <clears throat> I want to say David did a phenomenal job last week, and if you weren't here, uh, you need to go and watch it online. If you're watching online and you didn't watch it, go and watch it. He talked about the either-or fallacy, how so many times in life we present something as either this or that. And I loved how even as he took the different positions, the affirmative and, and the, the critical attacking the affirmative, how even in the ground rules of, you know, we don't have to prove this, we just have to prove that. And we don't have to prove this, we just have to leave the door open that there's other options. Even in those disclaimers and ground rules, he showed that life is not always as simple as an either-or. And I love that visual that he gave us of, of walking arm-in-arm arm with Tomas, that that is the way that we engage in, in debates and studies together, is doing it in partnership rather than attacking each other. Uh, so beautiful. And I love that, um, you know, I think many of us have never experienced a church service like that before. And so on another level, it's memorable. And as you remember that, it, it's going to stand out in your mind and be very formative. And I was thinking, there probably wasn't a parent here that didn't think, you know, that's what I want my kids to, un to know and understand before they go away to college. I want them to understand, you know, all of the different options and views and be able to uh, assimilate those and own those for themselves before they go away so that they can stand strong in their faith rather than having their faith just be something that church told them or the pastor told them or even that we told them and they haven't really made it personal. So awesome job. And as I was telling the staff and leadership this last week, I just love uh, having a break. You know, I get tired of hearing myself. <laughs> and it's awesome to hear another personality, another style, and it shows the beauty of a teaching team. So thank you, David, and thank you. Yes. Thank you to all of you that, that fill in. Joy. Joy is a huge part of transformation, a huge part of spiritual formation. That's why we're talking about it today. And I've titled today, at least on my notes, maybe not on your outline, Jesus, the transforming face of joy. Jesus is the face of transformation, and particularly that idea of joy. Now, historically, for me, uh, Oftentimes, I, I've heard so many sermons that are like, joy is different than happiness because joy is independent of our circumstances. Happiness is based on happenings or things that go on in our life, and if we have good things go on, then we're happy, and if we don't, then we're sad. But joy is above and beyond that. And I have even preached a number of sermons like that. But at that point, it's kind of like, that's what joy is, good luck. Hope you find it, hope you discover it, hope you experience it. And we don't really get into the practicality of what joy is. I, I love uh, the, the author of this book, the second half, of, or the other half of church, Jim Wilder, one of the authors. I love what he says. He says, we can't directly choose to be more joyful any more than we can choose to have lower blood pressure. Very good point. And he proposes a new definition of joy which you're like, well, why do we need a new definition of joy? Just stay with me and, uh, and hear what I have to say today. I love the image that uh, this guy started proposing things, and I'm looking at Scripture, and all of a sudden, Old and New Testament just starts popping and exploding with, with new images that I had never seen before. 
And so this is what he says that I, I just love, and we're going to see this flesh out today throughout Scripture. Joy is what we experience when we are in the presence of someone who's delighted to be with us. Joy is what we experience when we are in the presence of someone who is delighted to be with us. Keep that in your mind. We're going to talk about that today, and we're going to, we're going to work that through. Conversely, our joy drops when we sense few faces shining on us and few people who are happy to be with us. We can start believing that God isn't happy with us either and end up feeling isolated and lonely. And as we said, week one of the sermon series, that ends up depleting the soil of our life, the soil of our soul. We lose essential spiritual nutrients that keep us in a state of, of joyfulness and full of the fruit of the Spirit. We start feeling isolated and lonely and really drained. When our brain looks for joy and doesn't find it, we become vulnerable to pseudo-joys, as he calls it. These are substances and experiences that trick our brain to temporarily shut off the unpleasant emotions, but they are non-relational and ultimately unsatisfying. So as we're going throughout our day, as we're going throughout our life, and we're looking for things that give us joy... And when we don't find it, we can often turn to pseudo-joys, as he calls them. They're substitutes, things like food, things like social media, things like shopping, a whole host of things that are not bad in and of themselves. But when we are looking to things to bring us joy, something is wrong. There's more obvious pseudo-joys, things like alcohol, drugs, sugar, porn. I mean, the list goes on and on. But the characteristics about the pseudo-substitute joys are they are non-relational. They're usually things that we do in isolation, apart from relationship with other people. And they also are unsatisfying. They do not bring us the life and the fulfillment that we're looking for. And the truth is that God designed our brains to run on joy, excuse me, to run on joy in the same way that like a car runs on fuel. Our brains desire joy more than any other thing in life. As we go through our day, our right brain is scanning our surroundings, looking for people who are happy to be with us. Now, I want to I give you an example of a verse that many of you have heard. Many of you don't know the reference, but I'm sure most of you have heard this. It's number 6, 24 to 26. And some of you are like, I don't know any verses in Numbers. It's kind of like one of those books, you know, Numbers, Leviticus, you know, sorry. But I guarantee you that you've heard this before. You've heard this as a blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. God turning his face toward us and shining upon us this author says is the neurological definition of joy. You want to know what joy is on a physical, physiological, neurological level? It is God turning his gaze toward you and beaming upon you. That's an image that I would love to just be burned in your, in your soul today as you leave. Amen. So many of us don't even consider that God would ever just beam joy when he's thinking about us. We, we, we think of things that involve shame 
and guilt and, oh, the, the mistakes. And, you know, there's a lot I have to do to clean myself up that God could even look at me much more, look at me with joy and just beam with pride. But that's an image that I hope we burn in today. God designed our brains for joy, and he wants us to live in the glow of his delight. This blessing expresses a joy that can be paraphrased. May you feel the joy of God's face shining on you because he's delighted to be with you. Now, some of you are like, okay, well, that's a cool definition, but really, you're going to lay that over Scripture and say, uh, that's how we... Stay with me. I want you to hear some verses. God's face is connected with joy throughout the Bible, and yet many of us have missed it, myself included. Time and time again, when translating the word face from the original languages of the Bible in our English translations and other translations or other languages for that matter, face gets interpreted as presence. Because oftentimes the English seems kind of awkward to say God's face, we talk about God's presence. <clears throat> Many of you have, have heard, and you know very well, Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence, meaning God, in your presence is fullness of joy. I think, wow, what an awesome thing. In God's presence is fullness of joy. Can't wait to get to heaven. Well, we live in his presence right now. He abides in us. He lives in us. So is that something that we can experience right now? Absolutely. The original Hebrew for this verse, though, renders it this way. Abundance of joy with your face. In your presence, this fullness of joy is literally abundance of joy with your face. I had done a study years ago and discovered how the Hebrew word for face and presence was the same. And if you want to do a word study during the week in your devotions, it's fascinating, particularly in Psalm 38 to Psalm 42. There's a progression there where David is in the dumps. He is downcast, he's discouraged, and he, he goes into God's presence, literally has a face-to-face -face with God, and comes away with his face, his countenance transformed. And I had seen that, but I had never connected that with joy. And that's what we're doing today. We're connecting that and understanding that in terms of joy. Psalm 89, verse 15, uh, New International Version. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. Again, in the Hebrew, in the light of your presence is literally in the light of your face. That's the literal Hebrew rendering of that. Psalm 21, 6 says... You make us joyful with gladness in your presence, New American Standard Version. The word-for-word -word rendering of the Hebrew is, you make us happy with joy with your face. Face and presence and joy are all interrelated throughout Scripture. It got me thinking to famous you know, Psalm 51, King David's psalm after he sinned with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah, he says in verses 10 and 11, O oh Lord, do not cast me away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. What he is literally saying, friends, is don't cast me away from your face because it's your face that restores my joy. 
It's as I look to you and see your gaze upon me, your unconditional love for me, that I find the strength to have joy again. Time and time again in Scripture, God's face is connected with joy, and yet we miss it. Now, some of you might be saying right now, well, I don't understand what the big deal is. It's just a difference in words, but we kind of get the big idea. We get the big idea. But not really so, because the, the biblical renderings cause us to lose very vital, very essential bodily sensation. Now, you've probably never heard about bodily sensation in church, but God wants us to experience things with all of our being. When Jesus was walking along and the blind men in the Gospels called out and said, Lord, have pity on us, heal us, it says that he felt compassion for them. The Greek word is splanknizomai. It literally means a churning in your gut. He felt sick to his stomach. Their condition hurt him. It caused him to feel ill. And because he had compassion for them, Splunk needs oh my, he healed them. Time and time again in Scripture, God wants us to feel things in all of our being. And there, there's something about God's presence that we don't feel the same way as that image of God's face gazing and shining upon us, beaming upon us. It's a different, tangible uh, visceral kind of um, physical reality in our life. Brain science reveals that we look specifically to the faces of other people for joy, that that fills up our emotional gas tank. The face is key. God designed our brains to seek joy <clears throat> through the eyes and the facial expressions of others through people uh, and being with people who are glad to be with us. I mean, isn't that the whole thing about being with friends and family is you're in the presence of people that are delighted to be with you. They know you, and so you don't have to hide. You don't have to put on a mask. You don't have to pretend to be somebody that you're not because they know you for who you are, and yet they delight to be with you because you're family. You're their friend. You guys have bonded. That's what brings joy, and it does in Scripture as well. Reading through the Bible and replacing joy with the concept of God's face lighting up gives us a better idea of what joy means and how it feels in our body. Let's go back to Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. A fuller definition of that would be, when your face lights up because you're delighted to be with me, you fill me with joy. God, when your face lights up and beams because you're excited to be with me, wow, that, that makes me flip. That fills me with joy because I never imagined, I never considered that the God of the universe would feel that way about me. Mind-blowing, mind-blowing. Well, as we discussed two weeks ago, because our right brain processes at a speed of six times per second, it is literally impossible to always process words as fast as we process images. 
but that's what our, our, our right brain does. It is constantly processing images at a speed of six times per second. And that is why many times we will feel, feel something in our bodies before the rest of our brain and our body is even aware of why we feel that. You ever been in a situation where your antennas go up, your discernment, whatever it is, you feel something. Maybe an encounter with a person, a relationship, a situation. You're feeling something even before you can start processing, why do I feel this way? It's because our brain processes images six times per second. And so I thought today that instead of giving you three points, which David did a good job of mocking last week, that was fun. <laughs> like, if you really need three points, if you're really still at that level, then I'll give them to you, you know? And I'm just like, all right, okay, I get it. Message received. So today, I'm going to give you three images. Three images. Way to go, David. You've just changed the landscape of preaching single-handedly. See, that's the danger of giving somebody the pulpit. They just turn everything upside down. But, but here's the beauty of it. I'm giving you three images today because the images will be more memorable as well. And the images involve your right brain. And as you meditate upon these images, it will have the effect of bringing transformation. Because as we said, the right brain is responsible for spiritual formation. Now, I get it. I've argued with some of you. I've talked with some of you. It's not as simple, and I, I mentioned this two weeks ago. It's not as simple as left brain, right brain. The whole thing is intermeshed, but that's how we understand it. The left brain can be analytic. The right brain can be creative. The right brain is artistic. You know, the left brain is more facts, but the right brain does work in terms of images, and it processes images. So I want to give you three transforming images of joy today. And the first that I would suggest to you in life and in Scripture is the image of a newborn baby. The image of a newborn baby. An infant's brain develops identity through joyful interaction with its parents, with its mom and its dad. The joyful faces of the parents are combined with the baby's growing sense of self to form a triad of joyful interaction. In this ideal environment, joy becomes the baby's strength, and this lays a foundation for a lifelong joyful identity. Now, there's a question I'm going to raise now, and I'm not even going to pursue it because it would be impossible to prove this. But a key question at this point is, is it possible that God wired our brains modeled after the very model of the Trinity? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've talked about this many times. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, as literally in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was toward God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were having a face-to-face. -face. God did not create us because He was lonely, and He needed relationships. God was fully content and perfect and complete in Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was a fellowship and a unity and a joy that they already had, and they invited us into that. We were not created to stimulate that. We were invited to be a part of that. Huge difference. But is it possible that our very brains are modeled after that triune relationship? Something to think about, something to chew on this week. Brittany was talking at staff meeting about a study and a video that shows a mom interacting with a baby and smiling and beaming and 
talking and doing things, and the baby is laughing and so engaged and following, and then the mom shuts down, and she's just like expressionless, and just no words, but just staring at the baby. Within seconds, that baby is completely despondent and just worried and crying, and I mean, it's probably a kid that grew up to be really messed up and needed a lot of counseling, but it shows that we are looking for joy in the face of others. We are looking for others that delight to be in our presence. From the moment that we're born, we go throughout life looking for experiences like that that bring us joy and how huge that is and how that begins even as an infant. Remember what we said about the Old Testament passage in number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace that God turning his face toward us and shining upon us and beaming upon us is a neurological definition of joy. Well, in the New Testament, the Apostle John writes in chapter 1, verse 18 of, of John, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, meaning Jesus, who is in the arms of the Father, he has explained him. He has revealed him. Jesus is the manifestation of, of the joy of God's face shining upon us because he's delighted to be with us. The Apostle Paul words it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And, and listen to this carefully because this verse is chock full of theology. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, God who created ex nihilo out of nothing, the Latin made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed, how? Anybody remember? In the face of Jesus. Wow. The light of the glory of the knowledge of God that's revealed and expressed in the face of Jesus. Friends, Jesus came to earth that we might see God he came to reveal him, to explain him. And it's in his face, his life, his ministry, who he is, that we see a true picture of God. Is it any wonder that when the angel announced to the shepherd, the whole flock of shepherds in, in Luke chapter 2, do not be afraid, do not fear, for I bring you good news of an even greater joy that will be for all people. Here's the good news. The gospel means good news. And the good news is that as good as this news is, it's about an even greater joy. And this great joy is available and accessible for everyone. It doesn't matter what your background, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're educated or uneducated. It doesn't matter if you're a sinner or if you feel like you got everything together, like one of the Pharisees or the religious elite of the day. It's a good news of great joy for all people. I remember that when our kids were just infants, Denise and I would put them to bed early at night, and then um, sometime later, before we ourselves went to bed, we would oftentimes tiptoe and sneak into the room because every single one of them were super light sleepers. And uh, we just would gaze upon them in the darkness. And I mean, if there was a video recording that, my face and Denise's face would have just been beaming. It literally lit up the room as we gazed with pride upon these little cherubs, these little angels that we adored, that we loved so much. 
That is an image of how God feels about each and every one of us. I never, like I said, I never comprehended that and understood that until I was a parent. Like, unconditional love or, you know, I knew it in my head, but I never knew it in my heart until I had kids. And I'm like, okay, now I get it. The way I feel about my daughters is the way God feels about me. You know, what, what a thought. But that is the picture of how God feels about us. Imagine God, our Heavenly Father, doing that to each one of us. Joy permeates our entire body when we get that image. We get a physical, tangible sensation in our body from this image of our Heavenly Father's face beaming upon us. Not because we're perfect, not because we're righteous or good, but because He sees His Son Jesus in us. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be the righteousness of God through him. And it's in the righteousness of Jesus that we come dressed to stand before the Father, and he calls us sons and daughters. An amazing thing. We were meant to sense the emotional signals of life in our flesh and in our bones. God designed us to feel the joy of his presence, the joy of his face. And that's really what brings joy. Remember the, the response of Elizabeth when Mary, her cousin, came to visit her and she was pregnant, what happened? John the Baptist leapt within Elizabeth at the very... Well, like when, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, it says that John leapt within her because he was in the presence of his Lord, his Master, God. And when you and I are in the presence of God, when we light up because of his face, of his glory of being near to him. Our children bring us joy, and the Christ child has brought joy to the world. Now, I want to say that I get it that many of you didn't grow up with maybe loving, nurturing parents, and you feel like you're at a loss because of that. But may I suggest that God is that perfect parent who dotes on you, who constantly gazes upon you with love, and that fills in everything that's missing in your life, like, that's the true picture. I mean, it's awesome, and what a blessing if you had great parents, but if you didn't, you are not at a deficit because God is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is that person. The second image I want to give you today is courtship and marriage. Courtship and marriage. Remember when you, if you're married, when you first saw your spouse and when, you know, many of you, I've, I've heard you say, like, God whispered in your, that's the person you're going to marry, you know. I didn't have that experience, but you know, I wasn't that bold. I just thought, you know, there's no way in the world I'm getting that person. But when the first time that your eyes lock and you sense that they are delighted because of your presence and to be with you, and the development of that relationship, and the pinnacle moment, in my opinion, is when you're getting married and they're walking down the aisle. And as a groom, you're standing at the front of the church and you're looking down and you're destroyed because you're looking at your bride coming. And you're like, this person is committing to spend their life committed to me, delighted in my presence, for good or for bad, you know. And you feel the same way about them. And there's, there's, there's nothing better than that. And again... Not all of us have the best marriages, and so going beyond marriage on earth, we look forward to the marriage 
of the church and the Lamb of God. The bride, the church is the bride of Christ, and one day it says that God is returning for us. John chapter 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The tradition that you guys know so well, I've talked about it many times, when a, when a groom would propose to his wife, he would go away and add on to his father's house. And it might take a month, six months, a year, two years. When it was completed, he would come back and he would claim his wife and they would go and live together for forever. That's what Jesus is saying. And he says that right before he goes to the cross. I'm going to prepare a place for you. How? I'm going to die for your sins on the cross. <clears throat> that where I am, there you may be also. <clears throat> is it going to be a physical building? No, because in John 14, 24, whoever loves me and loves my father and keeps our commands, we will build our abode, our dwelling place in them. Well, there's a verse that John throws out that doesn't really make a lot of sense. John the Baptist is, is making disciples, he's baptizing people, and early on, here comes along Jesus. And the disciples realize that Jesus is baptizing people, and people are starting to follow him as well. So they go to John, and they say, this is kind of disconcerting. You know, attention's being diverted, from, and John goes, this is the one I've been talking about. This is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This is the one whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie. He must increase, I must decrease. I'm like, oh, wow. And then John says this, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. John 3.29, if you're writing this down. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. There was a tradition that the friend of the bridegroom would just before the bridegroom was getting ready to come and claim his bride, would camp out at the bride's house and not only guard her and protect her, that nobody would think, oh, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have my way with this girl before she gets married or anything like that. He protected that bride, but he also stood guard at her house because when the wedding party started coming with the groom, as the groom was returning from adding on to his father's house, he would see him at a distance and announce to everyone, He's coming. The marriage is about to happen. And John says, that's my role. He's here. The marriage is imminent. It's gonna, and I get to announce it. And so another thing that brings us joy is the fact that we have, been, we have been pledged to the Lord. And we have given the Holy Spirit as a down payment of that pledge, a promise. And we await the day that he returns, which leads into the third image that I have for us, which is the second coming. The second coming, the return of Christ. When Jesus returns, Michael the archangel will be as it is the friend of the bridegroom. He will blow the trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the Lord will descend. And I love how John the apostle puts this. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. Why? Why? For we will see him just as he is. I was saying to the staff, there's, there's two, two thoughts that I have that I can't prove, and someday I'll find out, and we'll all find out. Scripture says repeatedly, no one can see God and live. No one has beheld God at any time. Well, one reason, I think, is it would be like 
standing 10 feet away from the sun, it would be fried into a crisp and we would cease to exist because that's the brilliance and the glory of God's very essence and being. But I wonder if the other reason why no one can see God and, and why he doesn't allow it is because to see God in all of his fullness for who he is transforms us. And just like God didn't want Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of life in their sinful state and live forever in a sinful state, God doesn't want us to be transformed into an eternal state in a sinful condition. And so to see God in all of his fullness for who he is has a transforming effect. And that's the joy that we look forward to. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding, a better word is reflecting as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the same likeness, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord. It's not that we're beholding God's glory as much as we are reflecting the glory that we see in his face in our own lives as we are transformed. In 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. I want to draw this to a conclusion, and there's a lot of things I want to convey here, so there's a lot of notes here if you really want to dig in. If not, you can study it in the study guide this week that goes out, and if you're not getting the study guide, let me know. I can send it to you. Here's a quote from one of the authors of this book that I've mentioned. He says, when we're the sparkle in someone's eyes, their face lights up with a smile when they see us. We feel joy. From the moment that we're born, joy shapes the chemistry, structure, and growth of our brain. Joy lays the foundation for how well we handle relationships, emotions, pain, and pleasure throughout our lifetime. Joy creates an identity that is stable and consistent over time. Joy gives us the freedom to share our hearts with God and with others. Expressing our joyful identity creates space for others to belong. Joy gives us the freedom to live without masks. Because in spite of our weaknesses, we know that we are loved. Therefore, we're not afraid of our vulnerabilities. We're not afraid of exposure. Joy gives us the freedom to live from the heart Jesus gave us. And we do this, and as we do this, we discover the increasing delight of becoming the people that God designed us to be. That is joy. As we wrap things up today, I want to make this very clear. Joy does not remove pain and suffering from your life. Joy does not remove it, but it, it mixes with it. And I want you to catch this because this is so beautiful. It mixes with it and it allows us, it gives us the strength to endure it. Joy helps us to regulate our emotions and endure suffering. And Jesus is a great example of this. He refused to relinquish joy in the midst of suffering on the cross. Hebrews 12.2 tells us about that. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? Well, one thing, as we've said many times, was knowing that he was redeeming us, restoring us back into relationship with the Father. I think the other thing was that he was shedding his humanity and going back to enjoying perfect unity and fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. You know, that was part of the joy that he was looking forward to as well. But joy helps us regulate the pain. 
Because, of, because joy is relational, joy and suffering means that God and our community are glad to be with us in our distress. They don't allow us to suffer alone. And friends, if there's ever a picture of the church, that's the church, that we don't allow people to suffer alone, that we come alongside of them and we, we carry the burden. If I lose my job, it's not a joyful occasion. I'm going to feel some combination of sadness and fear and anger. However, when I experience these unpleasant emotions and can simultaneously feel that God is with me, I have essentially added joy to the mix. If I have close friends who are happy to be with me in my loss, my joy magnifies even more. Now I'm feeling sad and joyful, fearful and joyful, angry and joyful. Joy doesn't replace the unpleasant emotions. Instead, it combines with my emotions to keep me relationally connected in distress. Friends, relational connections was connection with God and connection with others is what brings joy. There's an action step that I want to give you for this week before we wrap this up. It's real quick. I want you to think of a memory, the author suggests this, think of a memory that makes you feel both grateful and connected to God in that moment. Think of times in your life for which you are very grateful and at that moment you felt connected with God. And then you're to give that memory a, a title or a name. Start a list of grateful memories with the goal of having at least 10. And use this list to go into five to 10 minutes every day of nonverbal reflection or meditation just upon that memory. For me, one of the memories is humlic and all of the things that God did in my life through the years. And as I think about that, it brings me joy. Uh, nonverbal gratitude is right brain. No words are necessary, just memories. Each memory should have two characteristics. Number one, you're aware of the sensations in your body as you relive it. Just reliving that memory makes you get tingles and the hair stand up because you, you're reliving the joy. And secondly, you feel uh, some sort of connection with God in the memory. Those memories have to do with God's goodness, have to do with his work in your life. These two characteristics assure that our right brain stays involved in the, in the process, the practice, which is important since building joy is a right brain dominant exercise. I want to leave you with these scriptures as we go into communion today. Jesus said in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that your joy that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. God's word is designed to bring us joy. A chapter later in, verse, in chapter 16, Jesus says, until now you've asked for nothing in my name, but asking you will receive that your joy may be full. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 25, in the parable of the talents, Jesus repeatedly says to the good servants, enter into your master's joy. It's my desire that each and every one of us would enter into the, to God's joy. And that starts with not just understanding his presence, but understanding that his face is beaming upon us this morning. Father God, we thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Jesus, we thank you that you didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but you emptied yourself, taking the form of a bondservant. And therefore, 
you have been exalted to the highest position that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is God and Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord God, we thank you for that. Lord, as we give back of our resources today and our offering, whether we do that physically today here or whether we do that online, we acknowledge that everything that we have is a gift from you, and we ask that you would multiply our gifts, not only to provide for the ministries of this church, but the ministries in this community that we support and our missionaries around the world that are further in your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.